Amen. All right. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John. And we are in John chapter 9. That's almost halfway. <laughs> yeah, that's almost halfway. John chapter 9. And I will be reading verses 1 through 5. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Amen. Now, this, of course, is uh, very closely related to John 8. Remember, Jesus was having this huge discourse with the Jews. And uh, where, where did it all start? You remember where it started? Look at John 8, 12. John 8, 12. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus came into the world to reveal... What, what is he talking about here, that this light of life? He came into the world to reveal God to men. And as men come to know him, then they can walk in that light and in that purity. So that, that's the immediate context. And if you look at the last verse there in, in chapter 8, verse 59... And so Jesus passed by. Some of your translations don't have that phrase there. You should get a new translation. And so he passed by. And now as he passed by, chapter 9, so these, these, these two scenes are connected. Right? This, this story is connected. This is not some, something else that John just plugs in here. Jesus leaves because now they're going to stone him. And what Jesus does is, he is going to illustrate his power to give spiritual sight to the spiritually blind by giving physical sight to a man who is physically blind. You don't believe my words. Okay, now here, here is a work. I'm going to do what I have been saying I can do spiritually. I'm going to do it physically. So that's the, the immediate context. That's what's going on there. But now, note in, in the Gospel of John, 
sort of this section. This is this really chapter one all the way through chapter twelve is the beginning section where he focuses on his ministry. John records Jesus' ministry to those who were not part of the twelve. And note the words in John twelve, thirty-eight. And this is just sort of giving you context of the whole book to fit chapter nine. So it's immediately related to the events. The woman caught in adultery, that, that scene in the temple, Jesus saying he's the light of the world, and then all of the interaction that followed. But now, if, if we consider it in light of the section of the book, look at chapter 12 and verse 38. 37, excuse me, 37. John 12, 12, 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. You see, miracles, and even real, these were real miracles. These are not make pretend, you know, um, Benny Hinn, uh, who are the other people? Paula White, yeah, Bentley Hart. These are not those fake miracles. These were real bona fide miracle, miracles. Everybody knew that this guy was blind. Everybody knew. And Jesus literally healed him. And although Jesus did all of these signs before them, they didn't believe that the word of Isaiah might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes unless they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he was, when, excuse me, when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So you see that a, an overarching theme in the book of John, at least in this first section of John, is this, is that Jesus comes to give spiritual sight and men are rejecting that light that Jesus gives. They are refusing to believe it. So immediately related to his discussion in chapter 8 as the section of the book as a whole. And of course, if we think of the entire book of John, why was it written? That you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John 20, 30-31. So Jesus is doing this to show the works of God so that men might believe he was sent by God and have eternal life. And he's going to illustrate this by giving this man his sight. So, back to John chapter 9, and we'll pick up at verse 1. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Did the man see Jesus? He was blind. He couldn't have seen him. <laughs> the man wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus sees the man. He sees the man in his sinful condition. Now, of all the miracles that Jesus does, the one, the one, the kind of miracle that is recorded the most is giving sight to the blind. And he gives sight to the blind in multiple instances. And people call out to Jesus. But here, this man did not call out to Jesus. Jesus sees the blind man. He comes to the blind man. And note what his disciples say. So, and this man had been blind from birth. 
important note here. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This was a common view among the Jews. And if you note, they, really they're, at, they're asking the same question, but of two people. The man himself, did the man do something so that he might be born blind? Or did his parents do something that he might be born blind? The disciples assumed, and most Jews during this time did, that there was a, that his blindness, his disease, was directly related to either the sins of the man or the sins of his parents. And so this is why he was blind. It was because of sin. That's what they thought. And this was, again, a common belief among the Jews. And particularly, it was a, which is a strange reading, but as, as I was reading, I realized this text comes up a lot uh, in the Jewish rabbis. It's Ezekiel 18.20. And they just take that verse itself, Ezekiel 18.20, the person who sins is the one who will die. Right? So what they would extrapolate from that, what they would get out of that verse is that the, the, the reason these consequences for the consequences that you're facing, ultimately, death, is because you have sinned in some way. And if you read the book of Job, that is exactly the mindset that Job's miserable comforters had. That the reason why you're living in this condition, and the reason why God, uh, these things have come upon you, Job, is because you must have sinned in some way. What was strange also is that the, the Jews, at least the rabbis, they reasoned that a baby could sin in the womb because of this text. But there's no evidence of this in Scripture. There's no, nothing really to back that up. Uh, so there's no evidence of that. And that's what they meant by that the man sinned. Remember, because he was born blind. So he, did he do something in his parents' In, the, in excuse me, in the mother's womb, some kind of sin. They would even say things like, if a woman was pregnant and she went in to worship an idol, to offer false worship, that the child was included in that false worship and therefore was culpable. And of course, the Bible doesn't teach anything like that. This was just a bad interpretation and application of the scriptures. But the second one, or the parents sinned, and the illness or disability is a punishment for the sins of the parent. Now immediately when we, when we, when we uh, hear that, we think to ourselves, no, that, that can't be. But you have to remember, in this case, that's not, the, that's not the case. Listen to what Jesus says. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. That's not the issue here. But because it's not the issue here, it doesn't mean it's not the issue ever at all. So, a practical modern day example, if a mother, and you, of course, it's, usually, it's the mother in this particular case, if the mother had been uh, an alcoholic or a drug addict, 
and she has a baby, what happens to the baby? Right? Because of the sins of the parent, the child is affected. And we have this illustrated for us vividly in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15. Um, I'll read that passage. 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is the sin of David. And listen to the words. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in, and all day and night was all day and night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then, on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, he spoke to him. We spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. You come to a passage like this, and um, the the you know these texts are in the Bible. And the best thing that we can do is place our hands over our mouths. These texts are revealing to us God's sovereign prerogative. And if we come to these passages and basically say, either I just I, I don't agree with that, I don't agree with it, well then what you're saying is I don't agree with the Word of God and I don't agree with how God chooses to deal with men. That's a problem with you, not with the Word of God. Now, on the other hand, we don't have hundreds and hundreds of instances of this happening in the Bible. We just don't. But this is an instance where it happened. Now, to, this, is, this is emotional for people because either they have had children with diseases so immediately they think to themselves, is he saying that God... No, I'm just reading the Bible. But look at Job. And we'll look at a few places in Job because Job, since he's an adult, takes some of the emotionalism out of, out of this reading of the Bible. But look at Job. Job chapter 1, verse 8. Job chapter 1, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hand, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand, and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. 
Note the words of the devil. The, the devil says, touch him, ha cause something to happen to him. And God says, behold, all that he has is yours, is, is in your power. Only do not lay hand on his person. So, why did evil befall Job? Because God decreed it. That's what this passage, that, that, is, um, uh, that is the way this passage reads. Look at, look at Job now 2, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, all a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited him, me, against him, to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you. To your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. And Satan goes out to do his will. What, what you, every circumstance that we face in this world was decreed and comes forth from God. That's what these passages teach. They, they, they don't teach something different. There's no uh, esoteric interpretation which uh, excludes God and God had nothing to do with it. Look at 21, 27. And there is no... Oh, well, how much to the book of Psalms? I was looking in verse 27, 21, 27. This is Job. He's discoursing on the wicked. So he's, he's, he's talking about the wicked. And um, let, let me read from verse 22. Can anyone teach God knowledge, since he judges those on high? One dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and secure. His pails are full of milk, and the marrow of his bone is moist. Another man dies in the bitterness of his soul, never having eaten with pleasure. They lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. Look, I know your thoughts, and the schemes with which, with which you would wrong me. For you say... Where is the house of the prince? And where is the tent, the tent, the dwelling place of the wicked? You have not asked those who travel the road. And do you not know their signs? For the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. They shall be brought out on the day of wrath. Who condemns his way to his face? And who repays him for what he has done? God. God is the one who does it. It's the Lord. 
So uh, when you look at Job's example, and then throughout all of Scripture, of course, the, the, what, what's the, I've asked this question before, what's the, the wickedest thing man has ever done? Crucify the Savior. God ordained that. He ordained the crucifixion of His Son for the redemption of His people. Okay? Now, uh, so, so if you're sitting here today and um, you know someone who is sick, or you are sick, it's not a coincidence, and it's not apart from the God's sovereign dealing with you in this world. And that's what we have to remember. You see, the picture that we would like to have of God is basically this genie, this guy, this, this Santa Claus. We won't say it this way, but we want a Santa Claus in the sky who bends to our will. And we don't want to suffer any discomfort. We don't want anything hard to come into our life. And if anything difficult comes, it must not be from God. It's the devil, you know? I've got a horrible transmission demon and my transmission in my truck keeps going out. Now men, and what you do is you harden yourself to the God of Scripture if you refuse to believe His Word. I'm not saying that uh, you have to understand all of the depth and intricacy with which God deals with man. That's not what I'm asking you to do because I don't know it. I don't understand why God does what He does. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not saying to you, I understand perfectly. But what I'm saying to you is that this Word reveals it perfectly. And what our duty is, is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, Jesus, Jesus says this. We're back in John 9. Addressing this particular issue, Jesus says it wasn't this man. It wasn't uh, his parents. And, and we saw that uh, there are instances where the parents can sin, father or mother, and the child be affected. That, that's absolutely true. That's not this instance. And also what we've seen is that this is not something that is contrary to God's decreed will. This thing has come to pass for a purpose. The purpose here, the, the purpose for this particular man's blindness is so that Jesus could heal him and God's glory be revealed. Look at how Jesus words it but that the works of God should be revealed in him. That is why this man was born blind. But the question, of course, that uh, we, sh we should uh, rightfully ask is, how are the works of God going to be revealed? What is, well, God's going to heal him. Is that always how the works of God are revealed? Absolutely, positively not. That is not how the works of God are revealed. Note this. There are several places where, um, 
I, I would say this. Uh, the works of God and the glory of God are closely related. So I think, and I'll, I'll show you some texts in the Gospel of John, but Jesus could have said this. I must work the works of, uh, excuse me, but that the glory of God should be revealed in him. Why do I think he uh, could say that? Well, look at John 17, 4. There are other passages, but we'll just look at the one. Uh, John 17, 4. John 17, 4. I have glorified you on the earth. How? How have you glorified God, Jesus? I have finished the work that you have given me to do. So as Jesus accomplishes his work on earth, what is he doing? He's giving glory to the Father. God is going to be glorified in this miracle. And it's not because hundreds and hundreds of people are going to believe, but because one person is going to believe. And that's the blind man. He, he believes in Jesus. He says, he says to Jesus, uh, and I love this, in verse 35, Jesus says, Do you believe in the Son of God? And the man says, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? And Jesus says, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. That is how God is glorified here. But you, you can ask the question, right? You, you can ask the question, and this is from the children's catechism. Is uh, Let's see if any of the kids in here remember this. How do you glorify God? By loving Him and keeping His commandments. That's right. By loving Him and keeping His commandments. And what does the man do? He loves Him. I believe. But now, and keeping His commandments. But now, because when you come to texts like this, it's, it's, we are supposed to think this way. How about when the glory of God is not the healing of the person? How do you glorify God then? You love Him and you do what He commands. It's the same answer. And do we have examples of this in our Bibles? Do we have uh, places where we can go to see this? I, I think preeminently we have the Apostle Paul. So turn to 2 Corinthians. God is going to be glorified in this man receiving his sight. But for some of us, God will be glorified in us by our sufferings. And that's paradoxical to us, but I, I think what it has to do with is um, uh, one, not not really digging in, you know, not really digging into the Bible, and not being taught that this stuff is in the Bible, and that's the primary issue. Most Bible teachers will not give you these truths. You know why? Because they understand that most people won't come back. Because this is not the God that men want to worship. 
They want to they 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 want a deity that they can conform to their own image and that they can manipulate. But that is not the God of heaven and earth. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 7, listen to Paul. So he was talking about, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, this theme of boasting and the people boasting that we discussed during the Lord's Supper is a big deal. And, and part of what was happening was there was these group of, of uh, teachers who would come and they had like certificates of teaching. You know, they had, all had seminary degrees. They had doctorates and postdoctoral dissertations and works and they'd bring them with us and show it to the people and the people were in awe of them. So Paul speaks of his, possibly, of his visitation to heaven in verses 1 through 6. But then he writes this. Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, is a view of heaven, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. So people say his eyes, who, who, we, but we don't know because he doesn't tell us explicitly. But he had some, phys, there was some physical weakness that Paul had. It was something. We don't know what it was. Listen to how he calls it. A messenger of Satan to Buffett. Lest I... And look how Paul... Paul... I don't think we could do this as well as Paul does it. But Paul makes a connection. And maybe God, if you're suffering with some sickness, might assist you this way as he does Paul, but it may not happen as clear. But look at Paul makes a connection. Lest I be exalted above measure. God has humbled me so that I don't become prideful. This, uh, this is an unbelievably biblical view of the God of the Bible. You see, this doesn't need a lot of interpretation. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that, he, that it might depart from me. This was something that Paul continued to bring to God in prayer. God, this thing is it's, it's, it's physically an issue. Lord, take it away. And what does God answer? My grace is sufficient for you. You, you don't need this thorn in the flesh to be removed. You need my grace. That's what you need. And here he's not talking about saving grace. He's not talking about being converted. What he's saying is, is grace in this sense in the sense of the strength that is requisite to live a life where you love me and obey my commands. And God gives that. God gives that grace. For, this is why, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Man. Right? 
even if you're not physically sick. I know how weak I am as a man dealing with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, just to use those categories that we've been looking at this morning. And how apart from the grace of God, I would not have the strength. But God's strength is made perfect. It is seen to be perfect. By who? Who sees it to be perfect? God himself. God sees, well, God's people, excuse me, God's people see the strength of God being perfected in them as he works through all of their weaknesses and inabilities, even physical ones. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. Why? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. So he sees his physical weakness and all of his inabilities, and what does he do? He praises and gives glory to God for it. Why? Because he knows then that God will step in and with an extra measure of grace enable him to love God and keep his commandments. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. Not, not just because he's a masochist, right? That, that's not Paul's deal. But he does it for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this is exactly what, what Paul, the apostle, um, excuse me, what uh, I think what John, this picture that, that he's painting, is in the weakness of this man, the strength of Christ is going to be magnified when the man is able to see. And for him in particular, it's by healing him. But for others, it's not that. It's Christ's power to help you to persevere. Right? Uh, when you face that wave of death, it's the grace of God helping and strengthening you to get past it. When you're facing the, uh, the uh, a physically debilitating disease, you know, medications, surgeries, whatever it is, uh, God, remove this, and He doesn't, then what do you do? That's right. And you rely upon Him to strengthen you, because that's what He says He does. He's going to, now the frame of mind has to be, I'm going to continue to pray that God would take this thing away. I'm not going to quit praying and asking. But as I wait, I anticipate that God will make His strength perfect in my weakness. That's what I wait for. And then the heart hopes and anticipates and waits and sees God make Himself strong in our weaknesses. So, uh, brothers and sisters, as we consider this passage in John, let us remember this, that whether in healing us or in leaving us the way that he does, Christ is working the works of God for the glory of God and for our good. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And I ask, Lord, that uh, you would help us. These are, these are hard and difficult truths, but truths nonetheless. So we ask you that you would please help us, Lord, to believe your word. Help us to lay aside our emotionalism. Help us to lay aside our defective views of, of God. Help us to turn from those and to look to you and to find strength in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.